The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Luna by Bayer. Superior efficacy on the most problematic diseases. Check out the difference Luna makes at lunafungicides.com. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. The Delta Tunnels Project received a couple of green lights from the federal government this past week, but there are still plenty of hurdles left for that project to continue, including one notable Fed holdout, the Department of Reclamation. We have the details. We've got the latest State Prop 65 ruling on glyphosate labeling, and there's another popular herbicide getting closer scrutiny as well. Rodents versus drip tape. We talked to one University of California researcher who's testing one possible solution in order to limit vole and meadow mouse damage to your irrigation systems. We have an update on the farmers' markets in the Sacramento area, crop reports, and a lot more. It's all on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. was a victory for the fish in the battle to build the Delta Tunnels this past week. At a press conference in Sacramento, federal agencies responsible for the protection of species listed under the Endangered Species Act provided biological opinions on the proposed construction and operation for the California Water Fix Project. The favorable biological opinions allow the project to continue moving towards construction, and that construction could start as early as 2018. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the National Marine Fisheries Service said the nearly $16 billion tunnels aren't likely to jeopardize the continued existence of the threatened species of the Delta. Barry Tom of the National Marine Fisheries Service said that his staff worked diligently with their partners to make certain through a robust scientific and technical analysis that this project conserves listed species. And he added, Species we have developed a final non-Jeopardy biological opinion. Those species include uh, salmon, sturgeon, steelhead, and endangered southern resident killer whales. Yes, you heard right. The Delta will be safer for killer whales. Although the biological opinions may clear another hurdle for Jerry Brown's quest to build two 35-mile-long, four-story tall tunnels beneath the Sacramento River, it's going to rejigger the way water moves to Southern California. But another federal department has yet to weigh in, the Bureau of Reclamation. So there are a number of still unanswered uh, questions that we need to still address. That's David Marillo, Regional Director for the Bureau of Reclamation's Mid-Pacific Region. Um, We still have to take a look at the, uh, with respect on the federal side, the financing, if people opt in, they opt out, what does that look like? Um, We still have to uh, create an operational plan uh, for the California Water Fix. Uh, That operational plan, two key components of that are these biological opinions. I think that was uh, one item that we needed. We need to get a better idea of maybe where the state board is going to go with uh, uh, any kind of requirements they're going to ask of uh, operations. We'll take a look at that. Um, and then there's, uh, you talked about the water users. Yeah, we, we continue to have discussion with the water users. Um, they want assurances on uh uh, no harm um, to certain groups of the uh, uh, Central Valley Project water users and we're, with respect to financing and also water supply. So we're kind of working through those issues also. So there's really not a timeline yet, but those are the types of questions we still need to answer. The Sacramento Bee reports that the Brown administration says the tunnels won't necessarily mean more water, but will allow the pumps to operate with fewer interruptions for fish. 
But questions remain about the future of farming in the Delta, questions that really didn't get a very direct answer at this press conference, in which the participants again represented Fish and Wildlife, the National Marine Fisheries Service, the Department of Water Resources, and the Bureau of Reclamation. Questions such as this from Josh Harkinson of Mother Jones Magazine. Now, what about the farmers? Uh, that was the second part of my question. Uh, are there going to be farmers put out of business in the Delta because of uh, salty water? And yes, there was a rather long pause. Oh, sorry for the delay. We're, we're conferring here about the best to answer that question. Finally, Department of Water Resources lawyer Ken Bogdan spoke up. You know, there's a parallel process going on right now with the State Water Resources Control Board in their uh, reviewing the uh, requested change petition for uh, the California Water Fix that DWR and uh, Bureau of Reclamation have uh, submitted. So um, as a part of that, uh, they are considering how the project is affecting uh, existing water rights uh, and water users within the Delta and also looking at uh, effects to beneficial uses, including if there would be any uh, indirect effects related to uh, Central Delta farmers, which I think is the question maybe you're getting at. Um, and just to add, um, separate uh, from that, uh, the Water Board is going through a uh, an update process with their existing water quality control plan, which uh, would, in addition, uh, be uh, looking at not just California water fix effects to flows in the Delta salinity issues, uh, but looking at uh, the broader effects from uh, any number of sources. So uh, with these uh, two processes, um, there's an expectation that uh, the water board and uh, with water effects uh, will be protecting uh, the existing uses that uh, currently uh, occur in the Delta. There's no question that this multi-billion dollar project will not be completed anytime soon. As Paul Souza of the Department of Fish and Wildlife pointed out, there are a lot of hurdles remaining. This is a complex project that will be constructed if that choice is made by the state of California and the Bureau of Reclamation over a number of years. The construction will occur in two phases. The first phase includes the construction of the tunnels themselves, the Clifton Court Four Bay, mitigation associated with those construction impacts, and also additional threatened and endangered species requirements. If the state of California and reclamation make the choice to move forward with water fix, there's no other future decisions that are necessary for phase one construction to begin. Phase two of construction is going to require more planning and analysis. Phase two includes the head of Old River Gate, the North Delta diversions, and all of the mitigation and monitoring associated with those construction impacts. In addition, there will be an operational plan that is finalized in the next few years that encompasses the California water fix as well as all of the other infrastructure associated with the Central Valley Project and the State Water Project. Environmental groups, Delta Farmers, and other opponents, however, said they will continue to fight the project, most likely in court. They argue that the tunnels actually would worsen the Delta's ecosystem, degrade critical fish habitats, and amount to a Southern California water grab. Meanwhile, several regional public water agencies that would get water from the tunnels must also make some decisions. Will they commit to paying for the project? Southern California's giant metropolitan water district leads the push they're expected to decide by early fall. 
Three officials involved in the project told the Associated Press that the politically powerful water districts are now demanding to have a bigger direct role in the financing, designing and construction of the tunnels instead of the state. Proponents say that would speed construction of the tunnels. Opponents say that could lead to a reduction in safety as well as environmental measures. Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Scott Pruitt says the controversial 2015 Waters of the U.S. rule has created massive confusion for farmers and other landowners about what bodies of water come under EPA jurisdiction. Pruitt says EPA is proposing this week officially to end that confusion by withdrawing the 2015 rule. Pruitt telling a Senate panel Tuesday if it is withdrawn, the plan then would be to revert back to 2008, uh, the, the standard that was adopted in 2008 through some guidance into the, in that time frame, and then, and then have a proposed rule on a replacement to the 2015 rule. Pruitt said he hopes to have the replacement rule published by the end of this year or beginning of 2018. The proposal to repeal the 2015 rule will appear this week in the Federal Register, would be subject to a public comment period, as will the proposed replacement rule. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Here's this week's California Crop Report. Alfalfa fields are making excellent progress. Corn and sorghum for silage continue to be planted, cultivated, and irrigated. The corn silage crop was in various stages from newly planted to already producing tassels. Cotton continues to be irrigated, cultivated, and is reported to be growing well. Peaches, nectarines, apricots, and plums continue to be harvested. Grapevines continue to have leaves removed to allow for improved air circulation, as well as light around the developing bunches. That improves the color. Late navel orange harvest is complete. Valencia orange harvest is ongoing. Regreening has become more common due to the higher temperatures. Ruby red grapefruit were harvested. Walnut, almond, and pistachio orchards are being irrigated. Mechanical and chemical weed controls continue in the nut orchards. In Sutter and Yuba counties, walnut growers applied sunburn preventative materials. In Tulare County, certified producers were picking tomatoes, cucumbers, squash, and peppers for sale at the local farmers' markets. Italian squash, eggplant, and cucumbers continue to be harvested. Blueberry and strawberry harvest slowed down. They were expected to come to a close with this week's hotter weather. Sweet corn harvest begins with a few roadside stands opening and sales at the local farmers' market. Carrot harvest has slowed down. Extreme hot weather has sunburned some tomatoes. In Fresno County, carrots continue to be irrigated. Weeding of lettuce seed fields continues. Roughly one-third of the onion harvest had been completed. The onion seed is drying out. In Monterey County, celery harvest has begun. It's picking up. In Imperial County, spring melons and sweet corn are being harvested. Many farmers are finishing up with melon harvest, and they're plowing the fields. In Calusa, Sacramento, Solano, and Yolo counties, the tomato crops were progressing well, even though the recent heat wave slowed crop development. Hot temperatures contributed to the drying out of non-irrigated grasses and forbs. Non-irrigated rangeland was reported to be in good to very poor condition depending on elevation, aspect, and soil moisture. The extended period of extreme temperatures and dry winds prompted red flag fire warnings across much of the state. Early fire season rangeland fires were impacting the western states, and that includes Idaho and Oregon. California has had more acres burned this year since January 1st than the comparable period last year. Cattle continue to be moved to higher elevation ranges, sheep grazed on retired pasture and dormant fields, and bees are still active in the melon and vegetable fields. <laughs> 
Don't forget, if you miss any portion of the KSTE Farm Hour, you can stream it anytime from the KSTE.com website or the iHeartRadio app. Plus, you can download it at any number of podcast aggregators, including iTunes. And if you like what you hear, please leave a comment. Glyphosate, the herbicide and the active ingredient in Monsanto Company's popular Roundup weed killer, is being added to California's list of chemicals known to cause cancer. And that's effective July 7th, according to the state's Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment. Monsanto vowed to continue its legal fight against the designation required under a state law known as Proposition 65 and called the decision unwarranted on the basis of science and the law. Reuters reports Monsanto's appeal of the trial court's ruling is pending. The designation of glyphosate under Proposition 65 will proceed following an unsuccessful attempt by Monsanto to block the listing in trial court and after requests for stay were denied by a state appellate court as well as the California Supreme Court. Monsanto's appeal of the trial court's ruling is pending. What does it mean to list glyphosate as a known carcinogen under California's Proposition 65? Well, that would require companies selling the chemical in the state to add warning labels to the packaging. Warnings would also be required if glyphosate is being sprayed at levels that are deemed unsafe by regulators. Who uses glyphosate? landscapers, golf courses, orchards, vineyards, farms, and, of course, backyard gardeners. Monsanto and other glyphosate producers would have roughly a year from the listing date to relabel products or remove them from store shelves if further legal challenges are lost. The listing is the latest legal setback for the Seeds and Chemical Company, which has faced increased litigation over glyphosate ever since the World Health Organization's International Agency for Research on Cancer said that it is probably carcinogenic. That was in a controversial ruling back in 2015. And also getting closer scrutiny is dicamba. That's a weed killer designed for use with Monsanto's next generation of biotech crops. It's under scrutiny down in Arkansas after that state's plant board voted last week to ban the chemical. China is an export market that people pay attention to, if for no other reason than its sheer size. That potential is not lost on Tim McGreevy, CEO of the U.S. Dry Pea and Lentil Council. China is our second leading export market. McGreevy spoke on a panel at the recent Montana Ag Summit at the Expo Park Arena in Great Falls. He notes that Montana is the country's largest producer of yellow peas, which are sought after by the Chinese. And those yellow peas are primarily going into the vermicelli noodle manufacturing. It's a clear, glassy noodle where they actually fractionate the peas separate the starch from the protein, and with the starch, uh, they make this glassy legume pulse noodle. He says he likes the noodles himself, but that the more important thing is that people in a country of 1.3 billion potential customers really likes them too. I really recommend it. It's a great product, and it's very, very popular in China. So we are now just getting into the snack market in China as well. The Chinese use green peas to make snack foods, which McGreevy says was something his organization was able to find out because it has a presence on the ground. We have an international office in Shanghai. We use market access program funding and foreign market development program funding, grants we receive from the USDA. 
that have helped open up, actually, those vermicelli noodle markets in China, as well as now the new snack markets for green peas in China as well. He says China itself grows a lot of peas, but it's not enough to keep up with demand. They're also a large pea producer in China, but they consume all of that domestically and actually feed their livestock, primarily the pork industry, with most of the peas that they grow. Which is why he continues to be optimistic for American pea growers. We are delivering high-quality Montana yellow peas to the Chinese vermicelli noodle market, and uh, I expect it to grow in the future. India is far and away the top export market for yellow peas from the United States. China's current demand is not even half of India's, but still, it is growing. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. It'll be weeks, if not months, before California's farmers can fully assess the impacts of the recent heat wave that hit many parts of the state. Harvest time will tell the story for most crops. Growers of processing tomatoes, for example, anticipate possible reduced yields. One farm advisor noted a positive outcome of the extreme temperatures. It could help tomato plant breeders refine their efforts to develop heat-tolerant varieties. Well, corn on the cob is part of 4th of July, and California farmers have you covered. Sweet corn harvest is going full speed as retailers promote it ahead of the holiday. Some growers see sales volume quadrupling during this time. Sweet corn is mostly harvested by hand and often at night when temperatures are lower. Once out of the field, the ears are kept cool so the kernels stay sweet and tender. If you recently bought or moved to a property, say in a mostly rural area, chances are you probably have a private well for drinking water. As Mississippi State University Extension expert Jason Barrett notes, It is a groundwater well. Groundwater is usually really good and safe to drink. But what if you lack experience when it comes to well maintenance and checking on water quality for your private well? Barrett says the main thing to remember is you. are the sole responsible individual for the drinking water quality and quantity. As compared to, say, a community or municipal system where there are certified operators and employees and constant monitoring to assure a safe and quality water supply. But Barrett says private well owners can rely on their own set of experts to help assure water quality. For instance, I would tell any homeowner, check with their state regulatory agency for drinking water to maybe understand what is in the water. So what are some of the public supplies treating for? Because that may be of interest to them. And some of those state and local regulatory agencies can also provide some form of assistance to a private well owner by request. They can reach out to their state primacy agency and they usually have regional engineers of some sort that will come out and assist, check that quality, check the quantity. Now, how often should a well owner have their water quality checked, and for what? Barrett recommends? At least once a year, preferably about four times a year. And when doing those checks, check for bacteria, nitrate. I would say those are the most common items to check for. Often a homeowner with a private well will also have a private septic system. Barrett says whether it's a property with existing well water and septic or if those need to be developed as part of the construction of a new home. The homeowners need to know the distances from your private well to your septic tank and your septic drain field. As far as recommended distance between the well and the septic components. Most of the times there's at least a 50 foot minimum between the well and the septic tank and there's at least a 100 foot minimum between the well and the drain field. If the homeowner can separate those even further, that's better. But you need to be aware of those minimum distances because, again, 
your private well is drawing water from the ground, and your septic system is going through its anaerobic treatment and then discharging and allowing that waste to filter into the ground. So you want to separate that as much as possible so you don't draw any of that or have a potential draw into your drinking water. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture at Washington, D.C. Rodent damage to subsurface drip lines is very common in our area, especially Yolo and Solano counties. Cracking clay soil creates excellent habitat for mice and voles looking for cover from predators, as well as maybe a free lunch in the form of prematurely shattered wheat grain. Small rodents that gain access to the drip lines as the soils dry out and shrink can end up costing farmers a lot of time and money in the form of repairs before they can put in their next crop. Research is ongoing in that area to maybe figure out a way to protect subsurface drip irrigation from rodents. Conducting that research, and it's ongoing research, is Conrad Matavius. He is the UC Cooperative Extension Agronomy Advisor for Sacramento, Solano, and Yolo counties. And Conrad, we're talking rodents here and not gophers, correct? Yeah, that's right. Usually we're going to consider them uh, small rodents, uh, mice or moles. And uh, to be honest, I'm not entirely sure which one is more of a culprit in this whole situation, but yeah. Are, are squirrels exempt from this conversation? Squirrels are exempt from this conversation from what I know because they typically aren't going to be, uh, you, you'd notice their burrows, you'd notice their, their impact. Which sort of fields are is this most commonly happening in? So um, as you mentioned in the beginning, uh, this, is, uh, this is related to the cracking clays, and so there's a geographic uh, component that goes with this, and depending on where those soils originated and the type of mineralogy they have, they're going to be more likely to crack open. When you have a combination of the cracking soils with a crop that requires a dry down, uh, such as wheat or sunflower in particular, because when that when that soil is then allowed to crack, that's when we think some of this is happening. What are they going after? Is it water or something else? We had to kind of think about a lot of this when we were setting this up, and and some of the wildlife specialist Roger Baldwin at UCANR is under the impression that you know they they get a lot of their water just from their food, like from whether insects or or little roots or uh, whatever they can find under the ground, and also the wheat has some moisture in it. Um, they don't really require standing water. So we think the reason they're going down there is because there's a source of food, one, uh, but that it also provides a little bit of shelter from predators like raptors or whatever. Um, it's huge. You can imagine, put yourself in a, in a mouse's head, you know, being a little crevasse uh, and having, like, wheat to eat would be a fairly pretty nice environment. So I think that's the driver. That's, put, that's getting them down there. The drip line is kind of a different story. And I, we think that they, they just they need to chew on things, they need to gnaw on things. And when you have a drip line that's kind of running right through the soil there, if they come in contact with it, they're going to investigate, they're going to nibble on it. And then they're going to want to tunnel and find the, least, the path of least resistance. And those drip lines often make a, a nice little perfect tunnel for them anyway. So they can kind of just chew their way through that and, and then they've got access to wherever they, they want to go next. Have you noticed any preference as far as the rodents go for the brand of drip line? Is one more susceptible than another? <laughs> um, not entirely sure on that. I think so. One thing I can say, and it's nothing to do with brands, is that there have been other studies that we looked at to kind of approaching this. That uh, that nothing that I did, but it, there was a, there was a study that was done at the International University in Florida that looked at drip tape gauge and the actual wall, uh, the gauge of the wall, and the thicker the thicker lines at some point 
and they were saying the 17 millimeter stuff was when you were no longer seeing small rodent damage. Rats were still getting through it. Gophers were still getting through it, but small rodents weren't really getting through it. We haven't replicated that here, and we could be dealing with slightly different species and, and, and kind of classes of rodents. And so I wouldn't, that's not something we've tested in these conditions yet either. Um, but that is something that if we talk about just the drip tape itself, I think that might be one possible avenue to, to, to explore in future experiments. Well, that raises a good question. Are we talking about drip tubing or drip tape here? Yeah, um, it's the subsurface drip tape that you would have it is really what we're seeing. And I, I think that the, the experiment in Florida, um, my assumption is they went to 17 millimeter, it's more of a drip tubing, but they were down to a four millimeter as well, which is a fairly thin wall um, that wasn't getting as much attention from the river. It was having, actually, there was more damage in those, those lines. On your research, are you going to be comparing uh, drip tape with drip tubing? Not yet. Um, so right now, the the main point in, in the research is to try and what we've done is, is we've kind of created extreme conditions where we've added water uh, just to test this hypothesis that when you have tomatoes in the field or, you know, in, in the previous year, the damage that came back in the spring wasn't nearly as bad, right? Uh, if you had, as opposed to finishing off the year in wheat or sunflower, you come back and do your repairs. It's a mess. There's a lot of, there's a lot of leaks and stuff that need to be fixed. That drew, that kind of gives me the thought, well, what's the difference? And I think one of the main differences is that the soil is sealed up. And if those cracks aren't there, or perhaps aren't as big in the tomato crop, or because it's always wet, you know, there's kind of just a little more moisture underneath, maybe that's stopping the rodents from going down there for some reason. That leads me, that led us to design this experiment in kind of an extreme version of that in wheat, where the grower was very generous and just gave us uh, some access to one of their wheat fields. And we cut off one of the lines uh, early in the season and let them dry down normally, kind of like in a rain-fed system almost. Uh, I think they might have had one or two irrigations before. But then, so around soft dough, we, we shut them off. But then the other ones, uh, we made, they, they would pulse irrigate once a week. And we'll see how it ends up. Um, but the idea is that we could create an extreme difference of conditions. And so if there is a difference, and the way the experiment is set up, it's scientifically replicable and relevant and all that. We'll have statistical data that says, like, okay, there is a difference. If it's wet, you know, under the in the, in, uh, in the soil profile, they're less likely to go in there. And if it's dry, they're a little more likely to get in there and cause damage. That We'll see how that comes out. I'm not entirely sure how that's going to work. So the idea here is uh, if mice and voles aren't doing as much damage to drip lines and soils that don't crack, then creating a sealed condition around the drip line and soils that do crack might provide some level of protection. That's the hope, yeah. And um, but, and there is there is a doubt. You know, I do have a doubt because we have I have there's been anecdotal evidence that that wasn't the case, right? Where they've tried things at some of the there was a at the research station. Uh, just in one of the fields, one of the guys was just trying to figure it out. And it was, but it wasn't a replicated trial. It was just an observation and, um, kind of said, well, there's still a lot of damage. But whether or not we can say, like, was there more damage than a regular year or was this just like a huge rodent population and they got it, you know, and they, it just like the volume of rodents was like what created that damage. So we're trying to get a hold on that as well. So that's the other side of the coin that gives me pause. Um, but yeah, that's, yeah, that is, you're correct. That is the idea. 
And since all farming is local, and heavens knows how many different types of uh, clay soils there might be in our area, have you noticed uh, what percentage clay content uh, may be most uh, conducive to rodent damage? Growers who are on this land, uh, or perhaps looking to lease this land, will probably recognize that there are soils that crack more than others. And the series, if you look on the UC Soil Web, if you look that up online, UC Soil Web, there's a there's a whole there's the old all the old NRCS and USDA maps that they that they put together uh, uh, quite a while ago. But those are still really great points of reference. The main culprits we're looking at in terms of the series name for the soil are the series like like Brentwood, Cape and uh, Rincon, and those those tend to have and it's not really a content of clay that does it. It's a content of clay that have to have you know say thirty or forty percent clay, um, but then also a certain type of clay, which is so it's a mineralogy issue, is because we could get into that we could nerd out on the soil side of things. But essentially these are these are middle aged clays. Um, older clays or younger clays will behave differently in terms of how they take on water and expand and contract. But it's that expanding and contracting of this particular stage in the degradation of these soils that causes those cracks to form. What is the timeline for your research? So hopefully we'll have some data because really what the the treatments are the water or no water, <laughs> uh, you know, dry and wet, and and then what I'll be measuring at the end of the season is going to be damage. And so literally we're going to be looking at count, like how many holes did we have to plug in these in these lines as we go up and you know, turn the water on and off, turn the water on and off, and then also trying to identify was this from the disc damage uh, or like a plow or like where it was kind of shallow. Or is this from rodents, or is this a gopher that just went through it? And so, if we can kind of identify what they were, then we'll just you know tally that up, and that that'll be the end of the season. So that'll probably be kind of depends on when the grower wants to go and fix all their lines. But I'm guessing sometime in the spring before we actually get everything compiled. So, if some grower listening to this may want to try it on their own uh, and try some pulse irrigating, what advice would you have for them? <laughs> I would. Um, Boy, yeah, I wouldn't want to make any recommendations just yet. I think uh, the only crop you could still do it in would be sunflower. The main things that I would look at, though, is if, if they did want to try that, I would say try it on a really small plot that you can control, right? Uh, start small, like anything else that you're experimenting with. Start small, and then take and then take records, too. Like, when you go back out there with the crews, like, take records and write it down. But also keep in mind, too, that on any of these, before you harvest, you're gonna to have to you're gonna to have to dry the soil out a little bit to be able to get access to it, or at least you're gonna to need to stay in the furrows so you don't compact your lines or compact your soil. So that's just a few things to keep in mind. Sure, turning off the water with enough time to dry it out a little bit so you can get on there safely, and then also um, staying in the furrows when you're actually driving, when you're actually harvesting. Yeah, it's a very good point that uh, driving over those beds could cause soil compaction and and pinch off the drip lines. That, that can cause its own set of problems. So, yeah, that's something I would definitely caution growers to, to think about. Are you experimenting with different depths for the drip tape? Right now, the drip tape that we, we just kind of are working right now to create this observational, or this not observational, but this just kind of a proof of concept trial. And so we kind of work with what we have to. And right now, it's a fairly shallow drip system, probably about eight inches deep. It would be nice, though, to see that. That is another element that I want to try and control for and look at it. Once we get this proof of concept down, then I can apply for grants and some funding to really set up a really deliberate experiment where we look at 
depth of the drip line. We look at the thickness of the drip tape or the drip tubing, and then uh, also track for rodents and stuff to confirm the presence or absence of rodent populations, because that's another thing we can't control. Are there even rodents out there right now? I'm not sure. It seems like a nice environment, but if you know they have to come from somewhere, typically. That's kind of a factor that we can't control. So this is ongoing research, rodents versus drip tape. And if you want to read more about the research that Conrad Matavius is conducting, go to the Sacramento Valley Field Crops newsletter for June 2017, put out by UCANR, and you can get some more of the details. Conrad Matavius, UC Cooperative Extension Agronomy Advisor for Sacramento, Solano, and Yolo Counties. Thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you very much for uh, including me. And if any growers have questions, um, feel free to reach out to me at the UC Cooperative Extension office. I'm located in Woodland. Or alternatively, yeah, check out the uh, Sacramento Valley Field Crops blog. And then you can put in your email and, and uh, verify your subscription, and then you'll get updates whenever I post anything in there. So there's a couple ways to get in touch with me if you have questions. Uh, but thank you for giving me the time to, to, to talk about this. I appreciate it. <laughs> We're lucky here in Sacramento to have a whole host of certified farmers markets where you can buy directly from the farmer fresh produce, fruits, vegetables, meat, fish, herbs, an amazing cornucopia. And one of the best markets around is the Sunday morning farmers market beneath the freeway at 8th and W Streets. It's every Sunday morning year round, 8 to 12 is the time for it. And Dan Best has been coordinated that farmers market and other farmer markets in the Sacramento area for for quite a while, as long as I can remember. And Dan, uh, this is the the Sacramento Sunday market. That is, uh, is it one of the biggest in the state? Well, it's the mother of all our markets in this area, but it's also the largest in terms of farmers. It's a, it's actually a program to save farms from being low, low cost food in inner city. So as far as we, we concentrate on farmers. And as far as the number of farmers, it's the largest in the state as a certified farmers market goes. There are some markets that are more community events that have arts, crafts, food booths, and all sorts of jugglers or whatever. <laughs> Uh, and farmers, and they have a certified farmer's market section and more vendors. But uh, as far as farmer vendors, uh, we are the largest in Sacramento on Sunday morning. The Sacramento Farmer's Market attracts a host of farmers from all over uh, northern and central California. Where are some of the areas they're coming from, and what are they bringing this time of year? Well, by and large, most of our farmers are coming from the six camps that surround Sacramento. Then we start going to the second layer. We start going south on the valley. Uh, we can actually, we actually have a date farm curved down in, uh, you know, Coachella uh, that you know, uh, sends his dates up, and, and we have a person there selling dates. But uh, by and large, it's 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 within you know 100 miles of of our market. Uh, we're just surrounded by our by uh, a bountiful. Uh, growing grounds for agriculture in Sacramento. We were very, very fortunate. We haven't paved everything in yet, uh, but uh, we get a lot of stuff from the foothills that are a little later than the, uh, the early stuff comes from the valley down south around Fresno, and then um, we also get uh, a little later stuff coming out uh, than that out of Yuba City, Butte, Sonoma counties, Sutter. And then we get El Dorado and Placer counties coming in, and they come even later yet. So we can get three stages of of uh, fruits and vegetables as they come on in. And then we have the coastal areas that, that we get uh, that can grow things that can't grow 
they tend to have a, a different kind of growing season and we can see some commodities come out of the coastal areas which uh, have exhausted here in uh, in the Sacramento County area. Besides fruits and vegetables, what are some of the other commodities uh, that one can find at the 8th and W market on Sunday mornings? Well, we, we, we uh, fruits and vegetables, besides fruits and vegetables, which is our main, our main fare, we do have a, uh, a couple of fish people that are quite that person, uh, but we do have meat meat products down there, protein products. We have uh, eggs, uh, obviously honey. Uh, we have uh, uh, grass-fed beef, natural-fed beef. We have uh, chickens, we have pork, uh, chicken, chicken meat. We don't have any live chickens. All, all those kind of products that we that are grown by the farmer, they can only bring in uh, that which uh, from animals that, that they in fact have control and ownership of also cheese is the same way if we you know there's a lot of a lot of cheese makers in the in the area but our cheese people have to actually own the animals which is producing the cheese and it's not just anybody who can show up and sell fruits and vegetables these are farmers that have to be certified by you that they are indeed in business year-round Actually, we, we do a little bit of inspection. We do a follow-up inspections, but the, the, the bulk of it is done by the county agriculture commissioners in which the farm is located. They actually go out in the field and they give a certificate that estimates their production, uh, lists about how many trees, how many rows of this and that that they have. I have some certificates on diversified growers. They can go 8 to 10 pages long, but it's all listed. Uh, so it gives us a guideline, but we still have to... Uh, inspect and make sure that uh, that what they're they're growing is appropriate for the season uh, of the locale that they're in. So yeah, it's it, and and then it's a state program, it's a state law. Certified farmers markets are different than uh, other kind of farmers markets, like flea markets, where they can just buy and resell. Ours uh, only the grower can bring in only what they have grown themselves. And it started back in, I'll just give you a little short history, it started back in 1980, uh, 79, actually, 79, 78, in that area there where we got an exemption from the standard pack and grade laws, which said that you know, a farmer couldn't sell anything unless it was packed, packed out, graded, and labeled in a box, uh, which made it difficult uh, for the small acreage growers to compete and everything, when they had all those middlemen costs, but they said if you sell directly to the consumer, then you don't have to do all that, and you can just bring it straight, straight from the field, uh, field pick unsorted, and uh, that's how we got started. We actually got started uh, as a, a deal program to aid a small, small acreage farmer to compete in the uh, you can't, who actually could not compete in the in the economies of scales. Uh, uh, systems that are controlled by large farms, uh, so their price the prices could you know couldn't match it. It's a pricing system which is a very low pricing system, and our our farmers couldn't survive. So by cutting out the middleman, they could make a little extra money than we're getting wholesale, and they could also pass those savings on to the consumer, which gives, leads to us uh, on the second prong of our program, which was to bring low cost food to the inner city. It was figured that our markets were started by the Hunger Action Coalition, the uh, Interfaith Service Bureau of the state, and uh, a bunch of group of farmers, and I was one of them uh, out of Stockton, 
uh, Lodi area that had an association, and that's uh, it, where it started, 1980, August of 1980. Now, besides fresh fruits and vegetables, there's a lot of great aftermarket products available at uh, the farmer's markets, and talk about so, some of those vendors. Well, there's dried fruit, there's, uh, you're talking about processed goods, there's jams and jellies, and there's some walnut oils, uh, this olive oil, uh, we have a couple olive oils. By and large, we're a fresh market, uh, but the, the, what they call the value, added, added values that they can by getting, uh, process, uh, uh, can, they can make a little extra money, especially if they're over, overproduced crops and maybe they can make jams and also sell those, but they all have to be in an inspector processing facility. They can't just be, um, make them willy-nilly, but or if they if they are cottage food, uh, which is a new law, but then they still have to have all the licenses to do that. It's the people themselves that have made farmers markets what they are. We used to just see senior citizens, uh, and then and, and a lot of large families, low-income families, go to the farmers markets. Uh, and that we located in those areas, the senior citizens did what tree ripen and vine ripen fruits and vegetables were, so they sought them out. They didn't want to go to six surrounding counties to fruit stands in order to get it when they can get it all in one place. What we're seeing now is, uh, people with baby, babies coming down, their kids, they want to know where the food's coming from and who's growing their food. A lot of them are looking at, uh, for, for something that's certified organic, uh, uh, or they just want to be able to meet the people that actually grow their food. And that's really, really important to people. And as I said, I, it's the, the markets are just full of um, mom, dads, and, and kids. And it just does a heart good to see a kid walking around eating, a, you know, a, a plum or a, or a peach or a strawberry. Or, you applaud the moms and the dads and the parents that do that because they're starting to the get out on the right the right track of fresh fruits and vegetables and that's that's kind of what we are that's what we're all about we're we're one community meeting another community for the mutual mutual benefit and sharing the bounty of california there you go dan best california certified farmers markets in the sacramento area it's that time of year it's a great place to be the farmers markets and uh, dan best of luck and thanks for a few minutes of your time thank you fred really appreciate every time we talk. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.